Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello. Welcome again to a new episode of the AJ Bruno Show. Today, we are very happy to welcome John Lehman to the program. He served in the administration of the great President Ronald Reagan as Secretary of the Navy, as well as a member of the 9-11 Commission. So we'll be talking about his time in the Reagan administration, uh, what that was like, um, and also his service on the 9-11 Commission, you know, what it was like being on the ground and discovering everything that was involved in that whole terrible ordeal. Uh, so without further to do. Uh, we have Secretary Lehman on the phone now. Hello, and uh, thanks for being with us. Well, hello, and uh, glad to uh, to be with you. This is uh, uh, a, a really uh, uh, an important time to be with uh, such an important interview show. Could you start by telling us, I know you served both in the Air Force and the Navy. Uh, how did you end up being in both branches, and can you tell us about what your time was like there? Well, sure. Um, I mean, I joined the Air Force Reserve uh, in the hopes of uh, uh, becoming a pilot um, and, and with the uh, Air National Guard. Uh, the Navy did not have a reserve program like that. Um, but then <laughs> it uh, turned out that, well, I was fully qualified and uh, ready to go. Uh, there were two pages in the colorblind test that, uh, that I could uh, uh, not pass and, and nobody uh, could get, grant me a waiver. And so um, when I was overseas, again, uh, with the Air Force Reserve, as a reservist drilling on weekends, uh, I was going to Cambridge University and uh, um, I was uh, offered uh, or approached by a recruiter, uh, why not join the Navy? So um, I took all the exams and passed them all. They said I was uh, uh, not colorblind. Um, uh, Thus uh, uh, disagreeing uh, with the Air Force, and I might add uh, parenthetically, uh, my wife, uh, that uh, uh, that enabled me then to uh, uh, get accepted for uh, pilot training. And um, so that's the reason I switched. And uh, uh, I, I have nothing but really uh, esteem and uh, uh, affection even for the Air Force because they were excellent in uh, letting me uh, move from the Air National Guard uh, in Pennsylvania uh, when, uh, to uh, uh, England and uh, uh, drill and serve with uh, the 26th Fighter Wing in, at uh, Lakenheath. So 
so it, it really expanded my understanding of the different dimensions of uh, of our services, at least those two. And uh, uh, I'm certainly glad I had five years to experience the Air Force, and uh, and then another thirty or so uh, with the Navy. And so, um, uh, if I had stayed with the Air Force, uh, I'm not sure I would have ended up the Secretary of the Navy. Also, but that's uh, huh. that's speculation. So, uh, you also served on the uh, National Security Council under Henry Kissinger. I'm curious about that, and what did your uh, duties involve? Well, I started out um, as uh, they uh, uh, as a junior staff member. There were three at that time. There were only uh, uh, thirty uh, professional staff members at the time. I had. Um, uh, uh, two degrees from Cambridge and uh, an undergraduate degree from St. Joe's, and I had uh, um, a, a master's from Penn, and uh, was completing my my doctorate there. So, and they were all in national security affairs, international law, international economics, diplomatic history, um, and uh, related uh, issues. And so I was one of the, uh, I started as a, a assistant. I was uh, recruited by Richard Allen, who was um, Kissinger's first deputy uh, and had been uh, President Nixon's uh, uh, foreign policy advisor during, uh, uh, actually for the previous four years. And, uh, but then Dick left uh, government service about halfway through the first year and so I reported directly um, to uh, Al Hagen Kissinger uh, as a junior staff member and then um, promoted eventually to uh, staff member. And then uh, before Kissinger went over to state, I was promoted to senior staff member. Uh, and those were the days I, today there, depending on who you count, uh, the professional staff is uh, about 200 for the National Security Council. And uh, uh, Kissinger never had more than a, a roughly 30 uh, professionals. There were administrative and uh, security staff and so forth, but that was uh, the 30. And, and uh, they were all really um, uh, very, very experienced and uh, that is the seniors, uh, and and very well qualified, and had the reputation, as you'll recall. Of course, you're too young, really, to have been around then. But um, otherwise, you uh, would know that Kissinger had the reputation of running the whole government, uh, foreign policy, government, CIA, security, and so forth. And he he uh, uh, did it because he did not allow his staff at the White House to become big and bureaucratic, which later happened. It uh, boomed all the way up to about 500 during the uh, Obama administration. And, uh, um, and, and so everybody on the staff had a lot of responsibility and a lot of uh, accountability. I mean, you were held accountable uh, by Henry. He was a tough taskmaster, but a very loyal one. And, uh, I learned so much during that the eight years that I was with him. It was five and a half 
at uh, this at the uh, National Security Council when he moved to state. Uh, I uh, he uh, uh, appointed me the deputy director of the Arms Control Agency at uh, the State Department, and uh, uh, that's uh, uh, that was where I spent the last two years of of the uh, Ford administration. So. It was fascinating because Kissinger is, as you everybody knows, a, a fascinating intellectual uh, and yet a very agile uh, uh, government uh, executive. And uh, uh, he understands how the government works. He understands power. Uh, he understands how to integrate uh, policy. And um, uh, those, in many ways, were the golden years for American national security policy, and uh, Henry gets a lot of credit and uh, should. He's a historic figure, so it was a real education and uh, a thrilling experience to work for him. It's interesting that it was so successful back then with such a smaller staff. These days, the bureaucracy is so bloated. You'd think they would learn a lesson maybe from that time, and I don't know. Crazy what's happened. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. It it, it is uh, the the steady growth and never reduction of our our government bureaucracy is the source, uh, direct and and in many cases the primary source of the problems we have today in government across the board. It's just not, not just national security. It's uh, it's the whole government. The bureaucracy just grows like topsy and and never never shrinks. And so it makes it, um, it, it everything goes so slowly because there's so many people that have, uh, that want to have a say in everything and that, uh, have to follow the process. Bureaucracy is all about process and the larger it grows, the more process there is, the more paperwork, the more meetings, blah, blah, blah. A good, good example is a new F-35, uh, fighter plane. Uh, that has taken it really 27 years to become fully operational, uh, starting with the first draft uh, 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 requirement. And you compare that to uh, what it used to be like in, uh, in the 50s, 60s. Uh, the Polaris program was really, in, in its way, much more com- difficult and complex uh, they had to develop a new uh, new submarine, a new launch system for a missile that didn't exist. They had to develop a new solid fuel for the missile and then design the missile and test it and prove it, a new navigation system for the submarine, a new navigation system, a space-based navigation system for the missile itself, design a new warhead, and uh, uh, it took from the start of the Polaris program, which was literally on the back of an envelope, uh, until the first deployment of the George Washington, uh, fully operational, took four years compared to an average of 22 for even the simplest systems today. And that's all because of bureaucratic bloat. And it's going the opposite direction of industry. Of course, we all know Moore's Law and what it's done, the, the rapidity of uh, the constant velocity of change in high tech, which has brought this country so much. Uh, yet introducing that same kind of technology in the government has gone 
in exactly the opposite direction. It just takes ever longer. And the reason is bureaucracy. But that's sorry for the rant. No, I agree. It's important to note that. Um, So before we pivot to your time as Secretary of the Navy, I'm curious, did you have much interaction with uh, President Nixon and Ford, or were you mostly dealing with uh, Secretary Nixon? Uh, my uh, interaction was, as a, a very junior person, uh, I have pictures of myself sitting in the back row during the cabinet meetings and National Security Council meetings. I was what uh, in the bureaucracy is known as a horse holder uh, and a bag carrier for uh, my earliest years in the NSC, but it was uh, uh, very educational indeed. And then gradually, before I left in the Ford administration, I was the acting head of uh, the Arms Control Agency, which was responsible for all the salt negotiate, overseeing all the salt negotiations and all of the all of the uh, uh, negotiations around the world involving national security. I I spent six months as a uh, uh, negotiator, as a delegate uh, during that period. Uh, in Vienna at the mutual balance force reductions, uh, which were a big thing at that time. So, um, but I was never, you know, in the in the Nixon Ford years, I was uh, certainly never a cabinet uh, officer, mm-hmm. and uh, and I wasn't, uh, I guess, level two uh, cabinet's level one, uh, level two. The highest I got in the Ford administration was level four. Yeah, you became. Secretary of the Navy at a pretty young age. How did you get selected for the position? And did you have any kind of relationship with President Reagan before being chosen? Well, my relationship uh, really during that period before Reagan's election was uh, really uh, with uh, George Bush Sr. Um, he, uh, uh, He was first a congressman when I was handling uh, congressional affairs and uh, uh, military uh, affairs with uh, uh, for Henry uh, on the National Security Council. So I got to know George Bush pretty well then. And then again, as he moved over to CIA. Uh, and so I was uh, on his staff uh, during his advisory staff during his run for president in 1980 and um, when he uh, dropped out I think in April um, then I was uh, recruited by Dick Allen to uh, join his group of 10 uh, and national security advisors to uh, to the president and it was during that campaign was the first time I ever met uh, uh, Ronald Reagan uh, and uh, uh, so it was a uh, I guess I first met him around June of 80, and um, uh, I had not met him before that because uh, I wasn't from California. <laughs> but uh, uh, so uh, that uh, that was uh, uh, I, I was selected really because I'd had uh, a, a pretty intense uh, uh uh, resume before that, as you, as I, uh, we just were discussing, 
uh, first in the White House and the National Security Council, and then later negotiating in Vienna, and then running uh, an independent agency, semi-independent agency, uh, running the arms control uh, uh, negotiations, which had a lot of logistical and uh, and business management aspects to it. Uh, then after that, I ran a uh, consulting company based in London and Washington for four years during the Carter years. And uh, But I stayed active advising both Republicans and Democrats in the areas that I was uh, most interested in. Uh, Scoop Jackson, uh, the Democratic senator from Washington State, was I was uh, I was quite a uh, an admirer of and a protege, and uh, he um, uh, I worked closely with him and his staff, and um, uh, also John Tower, who uh, was the senior Republican on the Armed Services. Uh, committee at the time in the Senate, and uh, uh, I had written a, a couple of books and and uh, a lot of articles and things. So um, uh, and I had had stayed in Washington, so I came to uh, understand uh, uh, how you swim in the swamp without getting eaten by the alligators, and uh, uh, so uh, it came down to. Um, uh, the job had all, already been promised by uh, the Reagan staff to um, uh, a Californian, and uh, he was a fine guy who ended up as an ambassador. Uh, but uh, so there was a bit of a struggle uh, during the transition, uh, and uh, it was really because uh, Scoop Jackson and uh, uh, Tower. Uh, really uh, put the uh, pressure on the president and uh, George Bush when he was selected after he'd been selected for uh, uh, for the um, uh, vice presidency. And above all, uh, Dick Allen, who uh, remained during the transition uh, until uh, Henry Kissinger was appointed as the main uh, national security advisor to uh, uh, to the president-elect. Uh, he was really my champion, and uh, uh, along with the other uh, three, uh, in fact, the four of them really made the made the uh, uh, the key uh, first team. And also, uh, Senator Warner was uh, uh, was very much in support, as was several uh, of the retired chiefs of the Navy, especially uh, uh, Jim Hayward. I mean uh, Tom Hayward and uh, uh, and uh, uh, Jim Holloway, uh, who were uh, strong supporters. So, and the fact that I had uh, completed flight training and advanced flight training, and had served uh, a few short tours the summer, thirty-day uh, tours, uh, uh, some of them uh, two, three-week tours. In Vietnam, uh, with deployed units, um, it, it was evidence that I had a pretty good feel uh, for the deck plates and for uh, the issues of the operational uh, Navy. It was good to be a sailor. So that's basically how I got the job. So um, arguably your most famous idea, the 600-ship Navy plan, um, 
How did that come about, and how much do you credit with helping the force of Soviet Union to spend itself into extinction? Well, uh, first of all, you know, my uh, 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 my academic uh, uh, training was uh, all on the, in national security and primarily uh, uh, studying under uh, uh, the realist school, people like. Uh, Robert Strauss-Pay and Sam Huntington and at, over at Cambridge, F.H. Hinsley and E.H. Carr, who were worldwide experts, but known for uh, uh, geopolitical and uh, uh, re- realist approach to national security. So, um, and I, you know, I uh, tried to uh, really become uh, very, uh, uh, well-read in international law and diplomacy, diplomatic history, military history. Um, I, I, of course, did a lot of courses and tutorials in in those subjects. Uh, so uh, that's uh, that's why uh, I really uh, uh, wanted to uh, uh, to get involved on uh, on the national security side and. Uh, why uh, basically I spent my whole career in uh, in that field and continue to this day. So there's called the uh, Lehman Doctrine. Uh, how much concern was there that this plan, the counter a Soviet invasion of Europe, would actually need to be enacted in reality? Well, it, it was, um, you know, because of, of my... Uh, geopolitical approach, uh, it seemed to me absurd. And it wasn't just me. I mean, I was part of a, a, a large group of, uh, of uh, 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 naval leaders and, uh, uh, and uh, academics and policymakers who felt that somehow we had gotten way off track in the Cold War. Uh, containment was absolutely the right uh, framework for our foreign, bipartisan foreign policy through the years, but gradually, we NATO itself and the Washington establishment became totally uh, obsessed uh, on the central front, the North German plain and the huge overhang in, in uh, uh, land uh, uh, power that uh, the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact had. They had deployed 180 divisions along the uh, along the Iron Curtain, and on the NATO side, we never got more than 40. Plus, the the Russians had another uh, uh, hundred reserve divisions and other members of the Warsaw Pact uh, more as well. So, this was um, uh, a, a huge imbalance, and the way NATO answered that was to come up with uh, the flexible response doctrine uh, because nobody really in, in Brussels believed that we could hold, the, hold them if they launched a conventional attack uh, through, uh, through Central and Western Europe. And so uh, the doctrine became, well, we will respond with tactical nuclear weapons because we can never match their 180 uh, army divisions. And, uh, uh, and and this to the Russians was just not credible because 
they, for them, there was no such thing as tactical nuclear weapons because the the weapons uh, that we call tactical, not all of them, of course, but the longer range ones would be landing uh, in Russia. And so that didn't seem too tactical to them. And they never believed it. And it didn't turn because they never believed that any president would uh, go nuclear first. And it also drove neither, frankly, neither did most of the NATO leaders believe that we'd ever approve first use because we knew that the Soviet doctrine was uh, once they were clearly uh, sweeping through Western Europe, uh, when they got to their key uh, positions, they would then stop and negotiate or offer to negotiate and to cease fire. And no politician, no leader in the West would ever say, no, we're not going to negotiate. We're going to nuke you. Uh, that just was not plausible. So uh, NATO became more and more defeatist. And uh, uh, so you started seeing, for instance, in the Carter administration, serious discussion of convergence, uh, not only just detente, but uh, we, we should negotiate with them about reaching some kind of a convergence of our two ideologies. There was a lot of bad intelligence in the, in the West about uh, how great the uh, Russian economy was and, uh, uh, and how uh, uh, good their medicine was, how good their education was. So why shouldn't we compromise and come up with some kind of a, uh, a, a, a joint uh, approach that would end the Cold War with a compromise, in effect. So, but yet the the great fallacy was that this total obsession with the Central Front meant that that uh, navies did not play even a a minor role in planning, uh, because the view at Brussels and Shape was uh, the navies exist to to bring to keep the North Atlantic sea lanes open and deliver the beans and bullets to the army, armies. And uh, they ignored the geopolitical reality that, that NATO has all the geopolitical advantages. Uh, the um, Warsaw Pact did not have, uh, uh, Russia had no warm water ports, and their military uh, forces were separated by, 12 time zones there, uh, you know, spread across the entire Eurasian continent from Siberia to, to uh, the uh, uh, Baltic states at the time. So um, here was a huge geographic advantage that NATO was ignoring. And the fact also that made it such a re- military advantage was that all the world's great navies were uh, in NATO and its allies in the Pacific. And uh, we uh, together outnumbered them. And but we were for 20 years, we were in a defensive crouch, training the Navy only for really uh, sea control to uh, uh, to keep the sea lanes open. When, in fact, we could use geography and the fact that we really had the best navies to surround them, to blockade them, to then use the Norwegian Sea, even the Arctic, um, and the Mediterranean, and the Western Pacific, uh, to attack them, and to attack their strategic vulnerabilities. 
which were huge and real. And uh, they had, uh, NATO had ignored using that. And so hence, the, uh, the Soviet Union had ignored defending against it, even though they built a huge 1,700-ship Navy. Uh, but that was to attack uh, the U.S. They didn't realize until we, we started uh, deploying. That's why we, the 600-ship Navy was derived, was deduced from the strategy of uh, deterring a, uh, an offensive by Soviet Union against the West and what it would take to uh, uh, use those ge geographic advantage by uh, taking control of the seas, using the superior technology uh, and and the equal size, at least, of the the navies, uh, which did, we didn't have then, but could easily build, which we did, the 600-ship navy. Um, and that, once they realized it, they could not carry out the continue the aggressive policies in Europe that they were pursuing. And so um, uh, that's what we uh, we did. And we built the 600-ship Navy. Then right away, the first year that Reagan was in office, we took the entire NATO exercise, starting with 250 uh, ships, and we took a, a, a fleet of 83 ships, including four aircraft carriers, two American, one Brit, and uh, one uh, 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 helicopter carrier, along with all the cruisers and destroyers over there, went right into the Norwegian Sea and started practicing, all the way up to the North Cape, started practicing mock attacks into the Soviet Union. And uh, we did not just the first year, we did it every year. Not only in the Pacific, uh, not only in the uh, North Atlantic and Norwegian Sea, uh, but in the Mediterranean, in the Eastern Mediterranean, in uh, the Western, uh, the Western uh, uh, Pacific, the West Pacific, and we proved to them right away that we could really uh, sink their navy. And we could use the geography to strike deep into the Soviet Union and the most vulnerable uh, military targets, their strategic targets. And uh, we, every year we improved. We learned the lessons from the previous exercise. Because operating in the Arctic, uh, in the, both the Pacific and the Norwegian and, and uh, uh, North Atlantic, it's very difficult. It's snow, it's uh, storms, it's uh, high seas and tossing carrier decks. And But we proved we can do it and do it effectively, and there was no, no way to stop us. And so uh, th that culminated in 1986 when uh, the uh, general staff of the Soviet Union sent a demarche to the Politburo saying that you must double the, the budget of the Northern Fleet and the Northern Air Force or we cannot defend the homeland. And that was a bombshell in the, in the Politburo. But it gave uh, Gorbachev, uh, who uh, was pursuing perestroika, uh, and uh, uh, gave him the leverage he needed to 
to take on the uh, 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 to take on the military, which he had been afraid to do before that, and because he knew what they didn't know, and that was how serious uh, the uh, uh, the meltdown in Kiev was, and how uh, uh, how the collapse in the price of oil was really facing uh, facing the Soviet Union with bankruptcy, and so that gave him what he needed to persuade the general staff uh, that they they had to give up these uh, these aggressive uh, the policies. And uh, they had to negotiate, and so um, and that led to a coup attempt, uh, which was thwarted. And uh, uh, so, uh, it, it, you know, Star Wars and other, uh, you know, the rebuilding of our uh, uh, strategic air force and the increase of the army to uh, 18 divisions, all of those had an effect on Soviet. Per, per, uh, Perceptions, but the big change in that calculus was really the forward strategy that Reagan uh, Reagan uh, uh, deployed. Uh, not only building a 600 ship navy, he got to 594, um, but deploying it, using it, and using it aggressively. Because he said in one meeting, "Look, uh, uh, containment has been successful for 40 years." Uh, and now it's time for rollback. We can win the Cold War without uh, fighting, without a, a war. And so um, uh, I think that the Navy's 600-ship uh, uh, Navy and its uh, aggressive strategy uh, was a major factor in, in bringing the end of the Cold War uh, uh, with Western victory. Great. Definitely. Um, so... Most of us who admire President Reagan never had the chance to know the man. Opinion, you know, does a man live up to the legend? And what can you tell us about knowing him personally and working for him? Uh, which person was this, President Reagan? Yes, President Reagan. Yeah, President Reagan was an amazing human being. I've worked around, I guess, six presidents, <coughs> including the current one. And I've uh, been in face-to-face -face meetings with all six of those. And uh, without question, uh, Reagan was unique. Uh, he, uh, he had flawless instincts about power and about geopolitical power. He had done a lot of homework. Uh, Dick Allen had spent three years taking him around the world and uh, getting him to understand what NATO was all about. Uh, he got to know and became friends with Maggie Thatcher and Helmut Schmidt and other European leaders. And uh, uh, he had just an instinctive feel for military uh, power and uh, how it uh, was part of, uh, should be part of national policy. And uh, he, he did not try to micromanage like several other presidents I met. He did not get into the details but if he was confident that a cabinet uh, officer was on the, on the same wavelength and, and determined and uh, able to carry out the uh, 
policies that uh, President Reagan had instituted, then uh, he was totally loyal and never undercut. And uh, even when, uh, when, for instance, in the Navy, uh, we were uh, not at all popular in some quarters on the Hill, and there were a lot of efforts to derail what we were doing. And uh, even among uh, uh, President Reagan's supporters, we were uh, driving hard bargains on uh, defense procurement. We were we got rid of all of the sole source uh, cost plus mentality that had uh, been had become the practice since Nixon. And uh, a, a lot of the defense contractors did not like what we were doing. We were, we were forcing them to compete. We were forcing them. Uh, to to uh, deliver on time or, or or pay penalties, we gave them the opportunity to make extra uh, money by performing and getting the costs below what a budget was. But um, uh, every time when major and powerful people came to see the president and argued against what we were doing in the Navy, uh, uh, I never never heard from the president. He wouldn't bother even calling me, uh, except, you know, when I'd see him socially, he would tell me about so-and-so, the chairman of this defense company had been in and said, you got to get rid of that guy because he's disrupting the smooth running of our, of the defense business and that sort of thing. Uh, never wavered for a moment in the whole time I was, uh, the six years I was there. So he was great to work for, and he had such a sense of humor, always at his own expense. <laughs> there were several uh, examples, but I, hundreds of them, really. I hope somebody uh, is getting them all. But one day I was bringing in uh, the uh, first Sea Lord uh, who was visiting from uh, England and um, took him into the, went into the Oval Office. He picked us up out, uh, out in the Roosevelt Room. And as we walked into the Oval Office, uh, he stopped and he said, you know, yesterday I spent the whole day in New Jersey and traveling around and uh, uh, almost every place we went to, every inn, uh, 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 restaurant, etc., cetera, uh, so many of them had uh, a, a, a brand black or some of them had it on the, the, the big uh, uh, restaurant sign outside. Washington slept here. And I said, uh, you know, it made me think that uh, someday after I leave, I know they're going to put a plaque here on the door into the Oval Office and it will say Reagan slept here. <laughs> so that was the sort of uh, witticism that came to him all the time and always at his own expense. And, uh, you know, another time they uh, after uh, there was that hijacking of the cruise ship at Kelly Laro, uh, and they murdered uh, an American, uh, it, it, there was a bit of a the Washington Post and New York Times especially got upset because nobody had awakened Reagan until his usual hour to tell him about the crisis. And Reagan uh, said in the press conference afterwards, uh, two days after, he said, well, I know there is a lot of criticism that I wasn't awakened in, in this uh, weekend's crisis. So I have made sure that that will never happen again. I put out an instruction that I am to be awakened whenever there is a crisis. 
uh, even if it's in the middle of a cabinet meeting. So uh, uh, he he was uh, he was fun to work work for, and and uh, uh, it, it will be a I hope uh, well. There is a fear that it might be a long time before we ever see his like again, but I hope not. Well, he was a rare quality leader for sure. So uh, we've got about five minutes left here. I wanted to touch on uh, your serving in the, on the 9-11 Commission. Now, could you tell us about your work on that and how you collaborated with President Bush and his administration? Yes. Well, um, that was – the President Bush did not uh, approve of the uh, – uh, uh, of the establishment of the 9-11 Commission uh, and uh, uh, did what he could to stop it being established, which was unfortunate because he felt this was a real intrusion on his his business. He could hold uh, the investigation and they didn't need a commission looking over his shoulder. Um, I was appointed really by... Uh, by uh, uh, John McCain, uh, who was one of the originators of the idea, and uh, uh, and we had uh, five uh, uh, active Republicans, um, none of them uh, uh, just uh, uh, Republicans in name only, and there were five real Democrats, active uh, political Democrats. And so none of us thought, or the, most of the Republicans thought the real uh, blame should should go uh, to President Clinton for not uh, really doing anything about the buildup of the terrorism and not taking you know action against Osama bin Laden. And the Democrats were all sure it was really uh, President George W. Bush's fault because uh, he paid no attention to terrorism before the attack and downgraded the the uh, experts on the staff and uh, never met with them. And uh, it turns out uh, we, uh, we, 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 we really ended up uh, uh, unanimous in our, uh, in our report. None of us ever foresaw that at the beginning. Uh, we thought we'd all have minority reports and, uh, and disagreements, but after uh, interviewing some, uh, 120 some uh, senior executives, intelligence officers out in the field, uh, and uh, uh, and uh, the, both presidents themselves, uh, President Clinton and uh, President Bush in the Oval Office, uh, and we, I think, over a million and a quarter—I forget the exact number—but of highly classified documents we reviewed. We had one of the best staffs ever assembled, 82 experts from inside and out the government who uh, were uh, not just uh, political uh, uh, appointees. They were real professionals with real credentials, um, didn't pay any attention to whether Republicans or Democrats, and there were many of both. And uh, we had a great staff director, and uh, we had a great chairman, in uh, Tom Kane, former governor of New Jersey, uh, and uh, the vice chairman, uh, uh, who was one of the most respected uh, uh, Democratic uh, House foreign affairs chairman ever. And 
And so we labored for almost two years. And we started from the beginning. We were not going to do a a, a typical government commission report, which is, you know, a big telephone book that is published by the government printing office and put on a shelf that nobody ever reads. We negotiated a contract uh, with really the the top publisher in New York, W.W. Norton, to do a trade book and to have it written. As a as a real dramatic uh, story to cover the the historic origins uh, of what uh, happened and uh, bring it up to the, the present day and and, uh, and make clear and catalog what the vulnerabilities were the mistakes that uh, both administrations had made and uh, uh, the vulnerabilities that were still to be dealt with. And then ending with uh, 42 recommendations of uh, how to fix it, and um, uh, so and it was unanimous. It was it, 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 and we never tried to make it unanimous. It was just the powerful, the power of the facts, uh, as opposed to opinions, that left no really no room for disagreement, uh, both in what the causes were, uh, what the mistakes were and what the remedies needed to be. So uh, as a result, as a result of the thoroughness, and I think the talent of most of the commissioners, first excluding myself, uh, the the, uh, book is still selling well. It was a bestseller for uh, over a year. And uh, uh, today we would change nothing. And that's what's remarkable after all these years, everything all of the recommendations, all of the descriptions of the causes, all of the historical facts were uh, are still uh, valid. Nothing has come to raise questions about any of our findings, of our investigation, etc. So um, we're all very proud of it, and it still makes it, it reads like a novel. It's a very readable book. No, um, you know, I remember hearing about it uh, when I was younger, and it uh, was definitely a good report. Um, we're unfortunately up against the clock, but you gave us a lot of really great information and history today, and I want to thank you again for joining the show. Well, my pleasure, and thank you for having me. Thanks. Fantastic. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.